0: open up to ephesians chapter 6 we're doing a verse-by-verse study through this epistle of ephesians and we're in the midst of a series on the armor of god and so this morning we'll be looking at the helmet of salvation and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive into our time here. I, I want to actually first read just a section about the six pieces of armor starting in Ephesians chapter six, verse 14, all the way through the first part of verse 17. So the apostle writes in the power of the Holy Spirit to the Church of Ephesus, starting in 6:14. He writes, "Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness." And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we thank you for equipping us as believers to be soldiers of Christ. We thank you that from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, you've armored us up for battle. Help us on this day not to be afraid, not to flinch, not to step back, but to step into the battle that you've called us. Help us to be filled with the Spirit. Help us to fight in the power of Christ. And I pray that you would illuminate our minds this morning to understand. What this Helmet of Salvation is all about so that you would be glorified in our life as Christian soldiers. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the question is often asked, whatever happened to the Roman Empire? I mean, exactly what happened to make Rome fall? They stood tall for, some would say, as much as a thousand years Others would say around 400 years of a well-known worldwide empire. What was it exactly that made the Roman Empire fall? Well, many historians would debate different points of view of why Rome actually fell, but most of those points of view would be similar. It would be things like poor leadership from reigning emperors. Uh, There was a great Roman disunity, which led to Roman skirmishes and even small-scale civil wars. There was also a significant economic decline. There were plagues which killed thousands of people. There was mass migration for the first time in a worldwide population. And there was the breakdown of the family unit of a mom and dad staying together in the home, raising their kids. There were more and more people in Rome who were interested in entertainment and in simply being a citizen of the great empire instead of being a soldier to defend the empire. And this all led to the fact that there was a decline in the strength of the Roman army. For most of its history, Rome's military was the envy of the ancient world. But during the decline, the makeup of the once mighty legions began to change. Unable to recruit enough soldiers from the Roman citizenry, the emperors, like Diocletian and Constantine, began hiring foreign mercenaries to prop up their armies. The ranks of the legions eventually swelled with German Goths and other barbarians, so much so that the Roman word that was used uh, to describe their armies became the word "barbarus," that started to be used in the place of the word Soldier. While these Germanic soldiers of fortune proved to be fierce warriors, they also had little to no discipline in the Roman art of warfare. According to one well-known historian who lived in the 1700s, Edward Gibbon, who wrote The History and Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire in six detailed volumes, he writes this, that as the 4th as the century progressed, the Roman army began to drift away from its previous practice of wearing body armor as the more and more barbarians began to join the army. While the Roman cavalry continued to wear their, army, the, the, their armor, the infantry ceased to wear armor, and in particular, their war helmets, beginning with Emperor Gratian. The reason for this was a lack of discipline, a lack of leadership, and a lack of preparation. Even after many casualties, the Roman army never recovered its former discipline, and no one bothered to restore the armor or the helmets to the Roman army infantry. Thus, we could say, as this historian concluded, that at least part of the fall of Rome was contingent on the failure of its infantry to wear their helmets because they would not wear their helmets in the theater of war. Eventually, Rome lost its grasp of a dominating empire and began to give way to the Gauls who attacked and overcame the Roman Empire. Not wearing your helmet in battle will surely lead to your defeat And to your demise. And today we're going to be talking about that paramount truth that if you don't wear the helmet of salvation, and if you begin to lose your discipline to put on your armor, then you will lose the battle. The helmet of the soldier's armor was never intended to be the first line of defense against the enemy. Similarly, in spiritual warfare, the helmet of salvation or the conviction and assurance of your salvation is not the first line of defense either. Let me explain what I mean. In a spiritual battle, you don't say, well, I'm saved and secure forever so I can begin to lower my defenses and put down my shield and go live any way I want. Because the Bible says, once you're saved, you're always a Christian, so I'll just kind of keep on the helmet of salvation, and I'll put down the rest of the pieces of armor. You, you can't do that. A, a soldier. Who would do this would be would be getting a lot of blows to the head. And a soldier that gets hit on the head a lot, even though he may live because he has his helmet on, he's not going to be much use in battle. And very soon he will lose his hearing, he will lose his sight, and he will lose his ability to think, and will probably end up with some serious brain damage because he's only using the helmet as his only piece of armor. A Christian who takes too many blows to the helmet of salvation doesn't lose their salvation. They could just end up like Muhammad Ali, who took a few too many blows to the head. And as we know, scientists say, developed early onset of Parkinson's and passed away just this past week. The human head is not designed to take blow after blow after blow without forcing it to some type of deterioration. And it's a tragic thing when a Christian misuses or abuses the wonderful, gracious gift of assurance of salvation as an excuse for sin. They end up as decapitated christians the living dead walking around forgetful of who they are and what they should be doing or what god has done for them in christ it is very sad that it might even show that they were never true christians to begin with or you can't be a christian if you only take up part of the armor you're only a christian if you're wearing all the armor of god You see, the thing is, the helmet is the last line of defense. The shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness are the pieces of armor which are to take the most blows. The helmet is only there for the attack that gets past these other pieces of armor. If you are living righteously and walking by faith, but all of a sudden you find yourself in some sin... And Satan has, through his wily schemes, gotten one of his flaming darts in, and then he comes and he starts to taunt you, saying things like, Oh, a Christian wouldn't do that. You must not be a Christian. Oh, a Christian wouldn't have said that word. You must not be a Christian. Oh, you skipped your devotions today? Well, certainly you're not a Christian in the army of the Lord. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. And this is when you bring out the last level of defense, the helmet of salvation the last piece of defensive armor prior to next week's study on the sword of the spirit but if satan has gotten past the shield of faith if he has gotten past and breached the breastplate of righteousness he is now going to be attacking your salvation and he is challenging you to question you whether or not you are saved he is making you doubt whether or not you are a true christian and maybe sometimes he tries to get you to think that you've lost your salvation that God maybe doesn't love you anymore. That God has given up on you. That God has thrown up his arms and turned his back on you. And these are all lies from the pit of hell. Ultimately, all of these are blows to the helmet of salvation. And the blows hurt. And it's not easy. It literally feels like that you stuck your head in an iron bucket. And somebody hits you over the head with a baseball bat. Wham! Wham! And as soon as that happens, your ears start ringing, and your mind starts twirling, and you can't see straight, and worry and doubt creeps in. You begin to panic. It's not a good feeling to have the helmet of salvation take a blow from the enemy. But guess what? You had your helmet on, yes? You've got ringing in your ears, and the stars are twirling around in your head, but at least your skull is still intact. You've not suffered a fatal blow. So in these situations, if you have your helmet on, if you are knowledgeable about what the Bible says about salvation in Christ, then you can be sure you are saved no matter what lies the devil throws your way. That's what the helmet of salvation does for the Christian warrior. It provides you with assurance of salvation, and it should be the last line of defense, not the first. And so when you sin. As we all do, you can say, yes, I have sinned, but thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, I am still saved. I am a Christian by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This morning, I want us to look at four headings that will help us learn what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. First, if you're taking notes, there's an outline there for you in your bulletin, let me give you some details of the soldier's helmet. The first detail I want to bring to your attention is obviously the physical helmet and the fact that it was made out of bronze. It's made out of bronze. The word helmet occurs 12 times in the Bible. Ten of those are in the Old Testament. Only two of those are in the New Testament. The word for helmet in the New Testament is the word kephale. The word peri is the word for around, surrounding. Kephale is the word for head. So it literally means that which you wear around your head. It's even translated in some texts as head covering. But in a military context, it refers to the Roman helmet, which was used during the time of battle. And in Roman times, this helmet would have been usually made out of bronze, and it would have come in various shapes and sizes. And while it is generally made out of bronze, it typically was fitted over an iron skull cap lined with leather and cloth so that it could be worn more comfortably. During Claudius' reign of 37 A.D., the helmet was revised so that it covered the back of the neck and it fitted slightly over the shoulders for extra protection. In addition, there was a brow ridge fitted above the face to protect the nose and the eyes. There were pieces that were attached to the helmet as hinges to cover the cheeks of the face. And this helmet was secured on the head with a chin band, not too much unlike the modern-day football helmet chin strap. We read about this helmet. Remember, I told you there's 10 places in the Old Testament. One is Goliath's helmet, 1 Samuel 17:5. He had on a helmet of bronze on his head. Not only did Goliath have a helmet of bronze, but so did King Saul as he tried to fit it on David when David was going to go attack Goliath. Later in that same chapter, it said Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. If you remember, those didn't fit David very well, so he threw off Saul's armor, and he attacked Goliath with just a sling and a stone, and God gave him great victory. We see the word helmet used in Psalm 60, verse 7, where God says, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet. Most commentators would say, To that, Ephraim was one of the largest tribes of Israel given to the north of Jerusalem, and so it would have provided protection if there would be an army from the north coming down to attack attack Jerusalem. They'd have to come through Ephraim, and so Ephraim served as a helmet protecting Mount Zion. In chapter 46 of Jeremiah, we learn about how God judges Egypt, and he tells them to take up your stations with your helmets. And in that text, he goes on and on to say, basically, where are all the armor you want, but Egypt, because you've defied Almighty God, He's still going to come and punish them. And so all these passages of Scripture, and just from common sense, really help us understand that the helmet is a very strategic piece of armor. For without the helmet on, a soldier leaves himself open to a fatal blow to the head and with possible decapitation. In fact, it is said of of the war of this time that a broad sword would have been used and oftentimes it would have measured three to four feet long. That's different than the sword we'll talk about next week, which would have been the short sword. But oftentimes in battle, as far as the cavalry is concerned, they would use the broad sword three to four feet long and it was used to advance in battle and these horsemen would swing their swords mercilessly at the heads of the opposing infantry. And from the cavalry's higher advantage of sitting up on the horse, they could inflict many deadly blows as the soldier would sit up on his horse and swing his sword, battle axe, or spear down upon the opposing infantry. It's easy for a cavalry person with a swift swipe of the sword to crack the skull wide open or in one sweeping movement succeed in a clean severance of the head from the body. Maybe you're thinking about some war scenes you've seen on movies that maybe you've watched of the Roman army going into battle, and it's a brutal hand-to-hand combat with many strikes and many blows. Not wearing a helmet in a battle like this is not being smart. Not wearing a helmet is not valuing your life. Not wearing a helmet is not caring about seeing the rest of your days. So the hero of the movie typically somewhere in the fight takes off his helmet, right? And he throws it to the side, and he's like, now I'm ready. That's a lie, all right? Because the true soldier would always have his helmet on so that he would be able to protect himself. Without a helmet, you would be doomed to your death. It would only be a matter of time where your luck would run out and you would be struck on the head and die. And the same is true for the Christian soldier. You cannot be a cowboy. You cannot go out in this world without your helmet of salvation on and expect to defeat the devil, You must, as a Christian, be girding up your loins with truth. You must put on the breastplate of righteousness. You must have your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You must take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And you must buckle on the helmet of salvation so that you can be ready to enter into the battle. You will be overcome without this helmet of salvation, you will be destroyed. You will be overcome. You will become a spiritual casualty of war. Without the helmet of salvation on, you have no defense against a false gospel. You have no resistance from sensual pleasures. You have no hope in a future salvation without the helmet. With the helmet of salvation on, however, you are able to withstand the blows of the devil. With the helmet of salvation on, you are able to protect your head from the swings of Satan's sword. With the helmet of salvation on, you are able to bounce off the battle axe of the evil one. It's to protect you and to keep you close to Christ as you think about and meditate on what the helmet really means, which is the second blank there in your notes, the spiritual helmet. It's what we're talking about. The spiritual helmet is made out of the hope of salvation. If you'll turn to the through the first Thessalonians text, it's the only other text in the entire New Testament that mentions anything about any helmet. It's only mentioned, again, like I said, twice in the New Testament, Ephesians six seventeen and in First Thessalonians five eight. In the first Thessalonians five eight passage we read basically that it is to protect us by giving us hope. It's to protect us by giving us hope. This whole passage really is about the day of the Lord. Look at verse 2. For you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And he goes on to describe the fact that at the end of the tribulation, when Christ returns, he will come like a thief in the night. And those who are not hidden in the blood of Christ as true converts will suffer the wrath of God. But those who walk in the day... Those who have been walking in spiritual light because of their deliverance from the kingdom of darkness to light will have on, look at verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, but those who get drunk, get get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope of salvation. So there we see again two pieces of the six mentioned in Ephesians 6 are mentioned here in 1 Thessalonians 5, the breastplate of uh, of faith. And notice it also says of love. And then we read about the helmet of hope of a salvation. And so I think here in this 1 Thessalonians passage, we're starting to understand that this emphasis of salvation is the hope of a future salvation to be delivered from the great and terrible day of the Lord because once you're with the Lord... You will always be with the Lord, and you don't have to fear his wrath. If you're walking in the light and not in the darkness, you have the hope of future and ultimate deliverance. And I want to talk more about that in just a moment, but let me give you one more little point here, and that's C. The helmet was worn by God and is now worn by us. In the Isaiah 59 passage, we've looked at it a few times. These are pieces of armor that God wore himself that Paul might have been alluding to as he's now giving this message of encouragement to the Ephesian church. He might be reminding them that, hey, this armor comes from God. In fact, in in Isaiah chapter 59, we read about how the Lord put on salvation and his righteousness upheld him he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and so the whole text is basically an anthropomorphism the idea of God putting on pieces of armor as a human would though God is not a human he's spirit and he's only been spirit for, from everlasting to everlasting but in this passage he's in a sense wearing a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation on his head And just as God wore the helmet of salvation, he tells us in Ephesians that we are to take up the helmet of salvation. So we got to understand that this is a time for us to take it up and and fast it on. And you and I cannot leave our helmet on the ground and at the same time be ready to fight. We must raise up our helmet. We must put it on our heads. We must buckle our chin strap. And we must engage in hand-to-hand combat as we are destined to with the whole armor of God. We cannot leave even one piece of armor on the ground and expect to have victory. So each piece of armor must have its proper place, and then we are ready for battle. And only then can we defend the ground that God has given to us. Only then can we be truly victorious. So let's talk for a little bit, if we can, number two, the major number two heading in your outline, about different aspects of salvation. Now, you know this already. I'm going to be talking here about your past present, and future salvation. So let's look at it. Number one, or A, past salvation, or you could call this justification, is freedom from sin's penalty. Freedom from sin's penalty. The truth is the wages of your sin is death. You and I deserve a great penalty for the great sins that we've committed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. And there was an event in time, when you turned from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, by the sovereign grace of God, working in your heart in such a way that you could no longer resist his heavenly calling upon you. and You repented of your sins. And by the grace of God, you became a believer based on what Christ has done. And in that moment, you've been set free from the penalty of death, from the penalty of the law. You are now in Christ. That's your past salvation, or what we call Uh, justification right we're now seated with him in the heavenlies that is it's what god has done for you in christ it's by grace alone you are uh, you are free from your sin right You, you you are forgiven you are clean you are cared for you are loved you're saved if you're in christ that's past salvation present salvation your next blank is freedom from sin's power We've been set free already from sin's penalty, but this talks about being free from sin's power. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And that whole passage of Romans 6 talks about using the instruments of our body for righteousness and not for unrighteousness, that we're able to defeat the temptations that we face day by day because we're no longer bound by the law. We are free by grace. And so not only are we freed from sin's penalty, we are now seeing that we are freed from sin's power. You were saved not to be dominated by past sins, but to experience freedom and power over sin. To the things that once held you captive, you can now say... I'm dead to that. Whatever it is that you used to struggle with, now that you're in Christ, you can say, you know what? I'm I'm not a slave to that any longer. In fact, I'm dead to that. I used to be in bondage to my fears, but now I'm dead to that. I used to be in bondage to my anxieties, but now I'm dead to that. It has no power on me. I do not have to contemplate the fear and anxiety that I used to do before Christ. I used to be in bondage to my lust, but now I'm dead to that. I used to be the center of attention, and all the time it was all about me, but now I'm dead to that. I used to be selfish with my time, but now I'm dead to that. I used to get angry and yell at the kids, but now I'm dead to that. You don't understand. I've been set free from the power of sin. I can walk in victory. That's our present-day salvation. That's part of what I believe Paul means when he writes to the Philippian church in Philippians 2.12. He says that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying that you're saved by doing good works. The very next verse says it's God who works in you, both to, to will and to act for his for His glory. But the idea is, is that we're supposed to be working out our salvation, meaning evidencing our salvation by demonstrating the fact that we're no longer slaves to sin. We're dead to that. We have victory over sin through Christ. So if you have been saved, you are dead to past sin holds in your life the third aspect of salvation is future salvation and i think this is the type of salvation that is being emphasized in ephesians 6 primarily because of the first thessalonians cross-reference of talking about the hope of salvation it's a future salvation freedom from sin's presence i mean we could also say why would paul all of a sudden be talking about getting saved past salvation at piece of armor number five I mean, if he's really talking about past salvation or your standing before Christ, wouldn't that have been mentioned first? But since it's mentioned as piece of armor number five, it seems to be more of it's a mindset of the future hope that you will be free from sin's presence. You've already been set free from the penalty of sin. You have the opportunity in Christ to be set free from the power of sin. But in the future or in glorification, you will be set free from the presence of sin meaning there will be no sin present in your life anywhere. You'll be with the Lord, and your life will be completely made perfect, finally, by the return of Christ or by you going to be with him. And this is what Romans 8, 18 is all about. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In other words, are you going through a rough time? Having a difficult time at work? Tough marriage, a physical trial. He says that the suffering you're going through, that has nothing to do with the glory that's to be revealed to us. In other words, think about the future glory you have in Christ. Think about the truth that Romans 8.30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Think about that golden chain of redemption that just just as as you have been predestined from eternity past, you will be glorified in eternity future, and it gives you great hope in the meantime. You could say, you know what? Yeah, I might have fallen. I might be struggling, but at least I know where I'm going. And it's not to be abused, again, as a hammock of grace that you take a nap in. Nowhere in this passage is there anything about napping or taking a siesta, right? It's the idea of gird up your loins. And because you're saved and you're looking to that return of Christ, put on this helmet of salvation. The night is Satan's dominion, but we are of the day. We are not of the night. We belong to the kingdom of light. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's Son. This means that Christ is coming back for his own. It means that we are secure in our salvation. This means that there is a future grace awaiting us in heaven. And so the piece of armor here, the helmet of salvation, I believe, is more focused on a future hope. And because you keep thinking about the future hope you have secured in Christ, you have strength to face today's battles. praise God that we've been set free from sin's penalty, and we've been set free from sin's power, and that we one day know that we'll be set free from sin's presence. Now, even with this helmet of hope that we have in our future salvation, we still have trials and tribulations that we've got to go through in this life. So let's look at number three, discouragement in the Christian life. Even with the helmet of salvation, all most of us, your next blank, face and have to endure difficulties. Right? It's still tough. Even though we're thinking about that future hope, this life is still tough. And so the helmet of salvation that the Christian wears helps us to endure the trials and not necessarily to escape them. You understand that sometimes the desire Christian is, I just want to get out of the trial. I just want out of here. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to necessarily take you out. You're still going to take some blows and engage in the battle, but I will help you endure the trial. Unfortunately, some of the most popular teachers of the spiritual warfare movement of the 1980s and 90s taught that Christians shouldn't have to suffer ever. In fact, they they taught that any type of suffering, particularly physical illness, was, was that they didn't believe in God enough or have enough faith. And so they would say something like, God gives perfect health, Satan afflicts Christians with diseases, and our job is to fight the devil and to claim our healing. One such teacher wrote this, quote, Disease is never seen as something that God sends for our character development or growth. Disease is never said to develop such Christian virtues as patience, long-suffering, trust, or faith. He goes on to say, Sickness in the New Testament is viewed negatively. It is not seen by God except as a punishment of sin. Sickness is to be healed It is never to be welcomed, and it always must be prayed against. There is no hint that continuing sickness in itself is beneficial. That comes from a book entitled Wrestling with the Dark Angels, edited by Peter Wagner. Well, how does that type of thinking square with Romans 5? Turn to Romans 5. We looked at it last week, but the author of that statement said basically we're never to be sick. It never helps us in our suffering. That it's not a means of, of, of growing, but a means that Satan's afflicting us. But Romans chapter 5 couldn't be more clear, starting in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our, what, sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because our hope is secure in God. And so here's the idea that, thank God, that we can rejoice in our trials, even when our sickness continues, knowing that God is greater than our sickness, and knowing that one day we will be delivered from our sickness in eternal glory with Christ. And the fact the word for suffering there in Romans 5 could be translated as trouble or tribulation, it literally means being placed under pressure, It's the same word used to describe how the olive press in Israel squeezes the olive with such an immense weight and pressure that the olive oil then comes out. And you have beautiful uh, usage of olive oil, even the virgin olive oil that was used in a number of ways. But notice how the olive oil comes out through great suffering. And I believe the same is true for the Christian life. You have an opportunity when you're under the pressure of physical affliction or any type of difficulty because of your hope and salvation in a future with God and even a glorified body one day, that you can turn into a beautiful aroma of Christ-like pursuit. And that's why I so appreciate again Romans eight eighteen. for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's why I love 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we did not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the idea here is that maybe you can appreciate this maybe from a personal testimony. So I think most of us in the room know of Johnny Erickson Tata, a famous, solid Christian lady who faced paralysis after. Breaking her neck, she wrote in her book, A Step Further, she wrote this, quote, "'No, Satan doesn't sneak out and cause pneumonia and cancer while God happens to be looking the other way and listening to the prayers of his saints. He can only do what our all-powerful and all-knowing God allows him to do. And we have God's promise that nothing will be allowed which is not for our good or which is too hard for us to bear.'" Praise God. That when Satan causes illness or any calamity, we can answer him with the words of Joseph, answered by his brothers who sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And then she writes this. I sometimes shudder to think where I would be today if I had not broken my neck. I couldn't see at first why God possibly would allow it, but I sure do now. He has gotten so much more glory through my paralysis than through my health. And believe me, you'll never know how rich that makes me feel. If God chooses to heal you in an answer to prayer, that's great. Thank him for it. But if he chooses not to, thank him anyway. You can be sure he has his reasons. Well, what a great reminder that even though we're saved... We're longing for our glorified body in this world when we're taking hits from the evil one. We can just remember that, right? That we don't have to doubt God's love for us. We can see through this example how our faith could be beautiful. Even though we're crushed outwardly, it doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory that we have in Christ. He's preparing us for something greater. And I'd say the helmet of salvation also, be the helmet of salvation helps us fight discouragement helps us fight difficulties, helps us fight discouragement. Maybe you remember this story of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, and there was a contest, and God answered by fire, and the 450 prophets of Baal were wiped out. And then we read in 1 Kings 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, So may the gods do to me, and more so, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. So in other words, Jezebel is saying, you killed the 450 prophets of Baal Tomorrow, the same will happen to you. And so what does Elijah do? Does he take firm stand, having seen God's glory on display that day, trusting that God would deliver him again? No, he was discouraged. And he ran for his life all the way down to Beersheba. So he runs from Mount Carmel, the northern part of Israel, 100 miles or so, down to the southern part of Israel, and he basically gets really frustrated and really upset about it all. He was afraid, and then it says in 1 Kings 19:4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. We'll talk about discouragement. I mean, have you ever felt like that? He went from a spiritual high to a spiritual low, Because maybe he forgot for a moment about the fact that his future is secure in Christ. That even if Jezebel were able to somehow end his life and death, as happens to Christian martyrs every day, that there's still a hope of salvation in heaven forever. That's our ultimate deliverance. And so there there are some that just think that there's to be no suffering, and that's just not true. And I think the way to fight suffering is by putting on the helmet of salvation, knowing that while we still suffer in this world, at least we know we have eternal deliverance in Christ. One more thought, the helmet of salvation helps us to stay dependent. It helps us to stay dependent. It helps us to realize As Romans 13, by the way, in your notes, instead of Romans 3.11, it should say 13.11, it says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In other words, when you're going through great suffering, just be dependent on the Lord and say, you know what, at least I'm one day closer to Jesus. I'm one day closer to being delivered from this trial because every day that you live is a day closer to the salvation that God provides. In the meantime, don't be discouraged. The labor that you do in the Lord is not in vain. You have a purpose, and maybe you could just remember these four things. I'll just rattle them off to you for the sake of time. Number one, be encouraged that we will be like Christ. First John 3, 1 through 3, talks about one day you will be like him. Not that you'll become a God, but that you'll be without sin, that one day Just like Christ is without sin, you also will be without sin. Be encouraged, number two, that we will be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he has prepared a place that he could come and take us to himself. If you don't feel like Jesus is close to you now, just take hope in the salvation of the future glorification that you will be with him for all eternity. Number three, be encouraged that we will have a glorified body. If you have aches and groans and a chronic illness and constant pain and you can't walk or you can't get comfortable or you can't get away from it just be encouraged that one day you will have a glorified body and i know it's so trite for me to say that being having been blessed by good health maybe but i'm just saying we got to keep thinking about that. The fact is, we will be imperishable. That which is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15 again. So we can take great encouragement in that helmet of salvation. Number four, be encouraged that we will experience eternal joy. In Revelation 21 talks about that, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so when you are discouraged, remember to take up your helmet of salvation. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Know one day you will be without sin. Be encouraged that one day you will literally be with the Lord. You will get your glorified body in Christ. You will experience eternal joy. One last thought, Here, number four, doubting your salvation. This is obviously kind of what we've been talking about throughout the message. But let me give you a couple of reasons, your next blank, why people doubt their salvation. By the way, did you know that everybody doubts their salvation? There's not one Christian in this room this morning who has never been through a period of time of struggling with the doubt of salvation. So first of all, just know you're not alone. It is common temptation to all men But here are some reasons why I think that we struggle with this idea of assurance of salvation. Number one, I believe that some of us are believing the wrong doctrine the wrong doctrine. We don't understand the perseverance of the saints. We don't understand that we are secure eternally in the hand of Christ. Many cults teach against this, talking about salvation being based on works. Therefore, if you don't perform enough works, you have no assurance of salvation. That's what purgatory is all about, that you're not sure if you're going to get out of purgatory to get into heaven. So it causes a a wrong doctrinal view of eternal security. True Arminians believe you can lose your salvation. Classical Arminianism started by Jacob Arminius way back 500 years ago taught that you could actually lose your salvation. This is also taught by the Nazarene church today. The Nazarene church will hold to a view that you can lose your salvation. I'm saying all that's unbiblical, unhelpful, and it causes some Christians to doubt their salvation because they have the wrong doctrine. Number two, another reason we doubt our salvation is ongoing sin and guilt. If you have ongoing, unrepentant sin in your life, no wonder you're doubting if you're saved or not. If you're repenting of your sin daily, then that's the evidence of the grace of God in your life and that you're fighting the fight. But if you're not repenting and you're living a double life, then obviously you should have no confidence at all in the salvation Christ has worked in you. And so it may be that there's some ongoing, unrepentant sin in your life. Number three, And I think this is what most people struggle with, at least in our circle, would be analyzing yourself to death. Analyzing yourself to death. Oh, no. Am I saved? I just said a bad word. I just had a bad thought. I only read my Bible for five minutes today. And other people read their Bible an hour a day. I only prayed 30 seconds today. And I heard that Dr. Wong over at the college prays for three hours every day. I must not be a Christian. And we begin to analyze ourselves to death. You know what the problem is? We got our eyes on ourself instead of having our eyes on Christ. We have our eyes on our own failures instead of thinking about what it means to walk by faith. And there's some people who go round and round and round and they could convince anybody of any unbelief due to one sin And so the idea is we've got to strap on the helmet of salvation to understand what the Bible teaches about this, and I'd like to offer you a solution to that, real assurance, your next blank, real assurance of salvation is by, I believe, just a couple of simple thoughts here. Number one, take God at his word. Just stop talking about what if, what if, what if, and just say, what does the Bible say? I remember that God saved me by his grace as an eight-year-old boy raised in a Christian home. When I was about 10 years old, I began to struggle with assurance of my salvation. I remember one night my parents wanted to watch the film that had come out back in the 70s or 80s called Left Behind. I'm not talking about the Kirk Cameron film. I'm talking about a generation before that. There were some pretty scary Left Behind movies out there, right? And so my parents wanted to watch one. I'm like, no way, because I was scared to death. I'm like, what if I'm not in and I'm out? And, you know, so I, I remember going running up to my room one night and I was afraid and my dad came up and said, Adam, what's the problem? I'm like, I'm not watching that movie. He's like, why not? I'm like, because I don't know if I'm saved. And my dad said, well, why are you struggling with that? And I'm like, well, how do you really know? How do you know? And my dad just did the simplest thing that a dad could do. He said, hey, Adam, open up your Bible to Romans chapter 3. And uh, sorry, well, we talked about a lot of stuff. But Romans 10:9, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. And my dad said, he didn't say you might be saved. Doesn't say you have to live a perfect life to be saved. Just says if you'll have simple faith and confess that you're a sinner, that you believe Christ died for you, you will be saved. Stop doubting God's word. Take God at his word. Romans 10, 13 says the same thing, right? So whoever, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, Adam, that's too simple. I say to you, that's what the gospel is, a simple faith in the treasure of God's word about what it says about you if you repent and believe. We must learn to take God at his word. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, And no one will snatch them out of my hand. God protects us by his power. He finishes what he started. He who began a good work in us will carry it on into completion. Secondly, not only must we take God at his word, but we must look to Christ for ultimate assurance. Again, too many people are spending too much time looking at their own life. Should we look at our life? Absolutely. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. But it doesn't say meditate on every flaw and failure you've ever had, and maybe you're not a Christian. It's just simple. Do a test. Do some inventory. If you want to talk about assurance of salvation, go to 1 John, which gives us 11 helpful tests. But the purpose of 1 John is not to cause a Christian to doubt his salvation. The purpose of 1 John is to expose the false teaching of the evil teachers of the day who were claiming that Christ was a demigod, not really our Savior. The point was to expose false teachers and at the same time to actually bring comfort to the believer. And all of those passages there in 1 John, you'll have to look them up on your own, all point to Christ. They all point to Christ, that Christ was real, that he heard him, that he saw him, that he touched him, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Every one of those passages points back to the walk of Christ and the death that he died, that we can know that we have eternal life by looking at who? Christ. So if you're looking at your life first as a means of assurance, that's what I call secondary insurance. Your life is secondary. You've got to do some fruit inspection. But if you're looking at Christ first, that's ultimate and primary assurance, and it can really only be granted to you by God, which is number three. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can give you assurance. Romans 8:16. the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's a subjective element that only God, the Holy Spirit, can make it known to you. Yes, there's objective truth, but there's also this subjective promise to some degree that if you're in Christ, that he will make it known to you and bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. So I encourage you on this day, if you're not sure if you're a Christian or not, stop focusing on your life. Stop focusing on your failures and focus on what Christ has done, the person and work of Christ. Repent and believe. And if you're not sure if you've really repented or really believed, beg God to change you from the inside out On this day, I call you to turn from your sin and come to Christ. And if you're here and you're not a believer, then you're not even struggling with assurance. Because unbelievers don't care. And I'm calling you today, if you're an unbeliever, to start caring about your life. And realize that if you turn from your sin and if you turn to Christ, He will save you. That you can be forgiven of all of your sins. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've thought, how long you've struggled. This day come out of the other side and come over to the Lord's side and allow him to gird you up with the armor of truth, the armor of love, the armor of salvation that you can fight a victorious life. Repent, believe by faith in Christ. And if you're a believer today, these take home application points are for you take up the helmet of salvation and wear it in your daily battles. Don't throw down the helmet as if you understand salvation. It's so simple that it's not needed in this particular battle. No, you better take up your helmet. You better put it on. You better think about the fact you've been saved in eternity past. You're you're saved in the present by the grace of God, and you'll be saved for eternity future if you're truly in Christ. Number two, don't be discouraged today, but be encouraged today in God's love for you. Maybe you're focusing too much on the judgment of God, the accountability of God, what God says, what we should be, and that's good and right, but sometimes you forget to focus on the love of God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God is where the focus ought to be. The love of God is what transforms you, thinking about his care and his love for you, and that's got to be done on a daily basis. Number three, receive the ultimate assurance of salvation. By looking to Christ. Don't look at your life as the ultimate means of assurance. Look to Christ. Don't meditate on your past failures. Meditate on future glory. For this is what it truly means to put on the helmet of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to just contemplate all of the depths and the riches of the glory of Christ. And we want to just... Take a moment, God, and say thank you for sending your son to die for us, that on this day we would understand what that means and that we would apply this passage by putting on the belt of truth and putting on and strapping on that breastplate of the righteousness of Christ. We would think about having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We would understand how to take up that shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. God, that we would take on the helmet of salvation this very day, God, that we would no longer spend so much time and effort doubting you, or not taking you at your word, or being so analytical that we forget that it's walking by faith and not by sight. Help us on this day, God, I pray for those in this room who would be struggling at this moment with assurance of their salvation, that you would help them to take up this helmet, to place it on their head, and to understand the grace of God through Christ. So God, help us today as we fight the battle to realize that the war has already been won, but you've called us every day to be ready to submit to God, to resist the devil, knowing that he will flee from us. it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.